It is the sentence of this court that Theseus Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Cyprian, thanks be to God. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod President Pastor Matt Harrison speaking at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. So, I would rather lay down on this spot and have my head chopped off than give up the Word of God. But with that strong, biblically informed conscience, I shall face my day and age. You shall face this day and age. We will confess Christ no matter what we face. And we will bear witness to a better way in Jesus. Come what may. Amen. You can watch and listen to Pastor Matt Harrison making the case for the Lutheran option from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a $300 gift by Labor Day. You can access an on-demand video stream or download a podcast of the entire conference. Order today at issuesetc.org. That's the Lutheran Public Radio Choir with the hymn, The Church's One Foundation. That hymn describes the true nature of the church, a church that is founded upon Christ, living in repentance and the forgiveness of sins, tempted from within and without, yet sustained all along until the very end by the Lord's word and sacraments. So why is that the hymn of the day for a Sunday where Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in live on this Tuesday afternoon, the 8th of August. It's time to look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, the 10th Sunday after Trinity. Pastor Peter Bender joins us. He's pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in Sussex, Wisconsin, and director of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. Peter, welcome back. Good to be with you, Todd. You wanted to start us out by way of introducing the theme with the hymn of the day, The Church is One Foundation. Absolutely. This is a hymn on the church. Christ is the head of his bride, the church, and he is the one that makes for her peace, echoing the language from the gospel for the day. It emphasizes the sacraments of Christ. And so you think about the sacrament of holy baptism, confession, absolution, the sacrament of the altar. These are the gifts of the Holy Spirit by which Jesus calls, gathers, and enlightens the whole Christian church on earth and keeps her with Jesus Christ in the one true faith. So it's kind of an umbrella hymn of the day. And by that, I mean, it encompasses the totality of the day's message in terms of the joyful, optimistic hope that we have in Christ, who alone is our redeemer and savior, and who sanctifies us by his Holy Spirit through the blessed word and sacraments of Jesus. And 
that's an overarching theme for the day, even though there's such a focus on the call to repentance from self-righteousness and pride as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. So we sing this hymn and we hear those warnings in the readings for the day, lest we find ourselves to be like the Old Testament church, the children of Israel and of Judah, who abided in impenitence and unbelief and so often were backsliding away from the Lord and his grace. So you've got the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered yourself to me as a hen gathers her brood but you would not, and you did not know the things that make for your peace. And Jesus is the one who makes for our peace as he calls us to contrition and repentance and then to receive the forgiveness of sins in his name. So there's a heavy emphasis too on both Jew and Gentile becoming part of the church. And so stanza two of the hymn, elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth, her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth, one holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food, and to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Though with a scornful wonder the world sees her oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song." That stanza three highlights something that we see in the Old Testament church and something that we see in the church today. The church militant means that we are not simply fighting against uh, false doctrine, impenitence, and unbelief from outside of the church, from those who have rejected Jesus and the gospel, but we also contend with it from within the body of Christ. That's true of the Old Testament church, as we see in the Old Testament readings from Jeremiah on this Sunday, and it's also true for us in the New Testament church today. But this hymn is very hopeful. You know, through toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits with consummation of peace forevermore, till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest, at rest from her own sin, from the sins of others, from the accusations of the evil one, from the corruption of this world, from false doctrine, and from death. Yet she on earth has union with God the three-in-one, and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O blessed heavenly chorus, Lord, save us by your grace, that we like saints before us may see you face to face. So you see how the hymn ends, Todd, with a very fervent optimistic tone as we give praise to our Lord who is the rock of our salvation, the cornerstone of his church upon which we rest all of our hope and his grace is the fountain and source of our life and the reason for our joy in the midst of, of the sorrows of this life. You know, the theme of this day is really the Lord yearns to save us all from the idolatry of self-righteous impenitence. But there are hard words to hear on this 10th Sunday after Trinity. So to have that hymn of the day before us, and particularly in the intro and the gradual and the psalm and the alleluia verse, we have the tone of joy and hopeful anticipation 
that the broken and contrite of heart have in their Lord. So those parts of the propers for the day kind of balance off the Old Testament reading for the day and then Jesus weeping over Jerusalem in the gospel. So catechism connections for the day, I would also, all of the first three commandments, you know, the first table of the law, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall have no other gods. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. We can make lots of uh, connections with the first table of the law. Also, the second article of the creed on redemption. He's redeemed me with his holy, precious blood that I may be his own. Christ is the one who makes for our peace. And then in the third article, the Holy Spirit is the only one who by the call of the gospel can bring about true contrition and repentance. And then, of course, the sacraments, holy baptism, holy absolution, and the Holy Supper of our Lord are the means of the Holy Spirit to bring Christ's peace to us when we have been brought to contrition and repentance and faith in Christ. So there's my introduction for the day, and we can go back and forth between uh, you know, some really harsh language in the call to repentance in Jeremiah and then some very sweet gospel, particularly in those other propers for the day and in the hymn of the day. You say, you mentioned harsh language, you say that some of those difficult words are balanced a bit by the collect for this coming Sunday. That's exactly right. And as we know, the collect comes after confession, absolution, the Kyrie and the glory and excelsis, the pastor turns, the Lord be with you and with your spirit, we respond. And then he says, let us pray. And so uh, I think the collect for the day especially is the touchstone for the balance in those readings. So here's how it reads. O God, you declare your almighty power above all in showing mercy and pity. Mercifully grant us such a measure of your grace that we may obtain your gracious promises and be made partakers of your heavenly treasures. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So the harsh and difficult words, particularly of this Sunday's Old Testament readings, in both options, and in Jesus' call to repentance for the children of Israel, and then his judgment that Jerusalem and the temple are going to be destroyed, not one stone will rest upon another, are balanced against this collect. The reason God's judgment was spoken against the Jews in the city of Jerusalem is contained in the gospel foundation upon which this collect rests. O God, you declare your almighty power above all in showing mercy and pity. So Jesus' strong language, the word of God given the prophet Jeremiah to proclaim, is not a harsh word or a difficult word to hear because God wants to destroy us, but rather that he wants to show mercy and pity. Therefore, mercifully grant us such a measure of your grace that we may obtain your gracious promises and be made partakers of your heavenly treasure. So the gracious promises of the gospel, the heavenly treasures of all that Jesus has done for us. So, we can never forget the collect for the day. And I think this is why we do these studies, isn't it? That we might see the wonderful integrity that exists in the selection of all of the propers of the day. From the introit through all of the readings, 
psalmody, gradual, alleluia verse, and so forth, there is great harmony to bring forth a message of hope for the broken and contrite of heart in the case of this particular Sunday. The intro it is uh, Psalm 55. I call to God and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. I think that, that while the Propers for the day focus so much upon the Old Testament church and the Old Testament readings, the collective congregation of Judah who worshiped there at the temple, and Jesus' words where Jerusalem is a word that embodies all of the Jews who were living at the time and looking back over the backsliding Jews leading up to the time of Jesus. This intro is in the first person. While we talk about the congregation of Old Testament Judah and how often she was backsliding in the worship of Baal and in self-righteous idolatry. Finally, in the end, each one of us must hear the call to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus, must forsake all self-reliance and any notion that one can justify themselves and lay the entirety of one's hope in Jesus and in what he has done for us. And so that's reflected in the intro. We pray it after the confession of sins and the absolution. I call to God and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety. Cast your burden on the Lord. So the intro assumes that it is the prayer of a Christian who is truly contrite and repentant. One who has honestly acknowledged his or her sin, self-righteousness and pride, heard the Lord's absolution, and who, even while hearing the rest of the readings for the day, does so desiring to live in honest, sincere, and humble faith in Christ. The law must apply to each one of us for the sake of the call to repentance and faith in the gospel that must apply to each one of us as we hear our Lord's yearning desire for our salvation. Pastor Peter Bender is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary. It's the Alleluia verse from Psalm 88 and the Gospel reading from Luke 19 next. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law. Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Deaconesses are women trained to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through works of mercy, spiritual care, and teaching of the Christian faith. The word deaconess means servant. Find out more on how you can serve in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod through the vocation of deaconess at lcms.org deaconess.
working in faith, laboring in love, remaining steadfast in the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. LCMS Deaconess Ministry, lcms.org slash deaconess. Christological, creedal, confessional. You're listening to Issues Etc. Lord, help us ever to retain the catechism's doctrine plain. What makes a church unique? Perhaps we should ask what makes a church faithful. Calvary Lutheran Church of Elgin, Illinois, continually learns Christ's doctrine, simply explained in the small catechism. This doctrine teaches us Christ crucified, who even today comes and serves his baptized children in word and sacrament to forgive, strengthen, and teach us for daily life. This, Christ's own work among us, makes and keeps Calvary Lutheran Church faithful. Visit us at clce.org. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, the 10th Sunday after Trinity. Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy is our guest. Peter, we come to the Alleluia verse in Psalm 88, leading us into that gospel reading in Luke 19. Psalm 88, verse 1. Alleluia, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Alleluia. We should hear in the verse for the day, the very same themes that we had in the intro at just a moment ago. This verse should be understood as the prayer of those who have, by the grace and Spirit of God, truly heard the call to repentance that was proclaimed by Jeremiah in both Old Testament readings and then finally in the gospel for the day which the Alleluia verse anticipates. Now it's our custom in our studies together that we move from the intro to the verse and then the gospel for the day because the gospel governs the theme. But we remember and draw attention to the fact in reciting this verse now, that it's coming after the Old Testament reading and epistle and sets up the gospel. So the the idea here is that we've heard the call to repentance and the warnings given by Jeremiah, and now we anticipate Jesus' own words in the gospel, and we cry out to him day and night. That gospel reading is Luke 19, beginning at verse 41. Yes, Jesus, famous weeping over Jerusalem, his casting out of the money changers in the temple, Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over her, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers." 
and he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the gospel of the Lord. This is one of those gospels, Todd, that it's very difficult to say this is the gospel of the Lord afterward. I mean, Jesus specifically predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Not one stone will rest upon another. A destruction that was fulfilled in the Roman judgment against the Jews in 70 AD. And it was a judgment that was actually given by God because of their obstinance, their impenitence, their rejection of the Lord Jesus. The time of their visitation was Jesus' own ministry. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was that kingdom. He is the culmination of everything the Old Testament prophets from Moses to Malachi were preparing for. John the Baptist announced the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And yet so many of them rejected him. But those who hung on his every word found life and salvation in him. So Jerusalem symbolizes God's chosen people and the location of his saving presence there at the temple where the sacrifices were offered. Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. I think it's very important to understand this as an expression of his love, his yearning desire for the chosen descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to truly repent of their self-righteousness and pride and to believe the gospel, to receive him in contrition and genuine repentance. And while it is true that on the whole, the Jews at the time of Jesus and the apostles rejected Jesus, yet we can't forget that the first disciples of Jesus, the first followers of Jesus, those multitudes that pressed about him, were all Jews among whom the Holy Spirit had worked contrition and genuine repentance. And of course, there were Samaritans and there were other Gentiles among them. But it is not as if every single Jew that ever lived at the time of Jesus rejected him. The 12 disciples were all Jews, after all. Uh, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, was a Jew, after all. So it is not as if every single Jew rejected, but on the whole, there was this great wholesale rejection of Jesus. But those who were brought to the miracle of contrition and repentance, they pressed about him to see and to hear his word. So Jesus is the only one who makes for our peace. If you had known in your day, the time of your visitation and the things that make for your peace, as they would be led to genuine contrition and repentance and faith toward him alone, he is the one that makes for our peace. So the result of persistent unbelief is the judgment that Jesus speaks about in this gospel for the day, and it would manifest itself for the Old Testament church in the destruction of both Jerusalem as her capital city and the temple where the sacrifices were made. That liturgy of the temple is really significant. If they approached that liturgy of the temple as their work, their offering, and disconnected it from the promise of salvation and the coming Redeemer, then they were making those offerings in a works righteous faith. But if, on the other hand, they approached those sacrifices in true contrition and repentance with faith in the coming Redeemer, who would 
save them ultimately from their sins, then those sacrifices and those liturgy had real value. So Jesus is the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the true and only temple of the Lord, and therefore the only source of salvation. So I think when Jesus chases the money changers out of the temple, I remember when I was first a pastor in Iowa, this was cited as the reason why the church shouldn't have a rummage sale on a Saturday afternoon. And it has little to do with that kind of thing. But rather, he chases the money changers out of the temple not only because they bought and sold the animals for sacrifice from a position of self-righteousness and greed, but because the Old Testament sacrifices were coming to an end in Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross. And he was smashing and overturning any notion of salvation by their own works and their own sacrifices. So the temple worship, again, it had great value. It was given by God. It was given by the Lord himself, but it had value only as it showed them their sin, only as it pointed them to Christ's fulfillment of the law for them in his once and for all sacrifice upon the cross. And only insofar as those sacrifices, when they were engaged in, were accompanied by genuine contrition and repentance with a faith in the coming Savior. But because Jesus was sacrificed upon the cross, uh, that period of time from 33 AD when Jesus dies and rises from the dead to 70 AD when the temple is destroyed is simply a transitional period, an opportunity for the remaining Jews who still gathered there in Jerusalem to hear that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ, and therefore uh, the uh, temple worship will finally come to an end, which it did in 70 AD, never to be resumed again. Jesus uses the expression house of prayer. Great expression. A house of prayer is how the temple is described for this reason. Our access to God in prayer when we invoke the name of the Lord and so forth is only through the merits and mediation of Christ, who is our righteousness through whose atoning sacrifice we have access and the right to approach the throne of grace. So it is not a house of prayer because we have the right to access God and call upon him for his help on the basis of our piety or our faithfulness to the liturgy. It is rather on the basis of the merits and mediation of Christ, our righteousness, that we have any access to God alone. That's what makes the temple a house of prayer or any of our houses of worship today a house of prayer. He uses the term robbers. You know, it's a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Robbers are those who attempt to attain something that they have no right to attain. And so if you attempt to attain God's blessing because, well, we're the chosen people, or we have been obedient to the law, or we enjoy God's favor because we are superior to all other nations on earth, then you are claiming to attain something and demand something from God that you have no right to. The only way we have access to the gifts of God's salvation is through Jesus' sacrifice for us. So in response to Jesus' actions and call to repentance, the chief priests and elders then sought to destroy him. And that's how the gospel ends. In the meantime, those who heard it, they pressed about him because they wanted to hear more. What a great description of what it is then to be a Christian and to have been brought to 
repentance and faith in Christ, the one who makes for our peace. Pastor Peter Bender is our guest. He's director of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. We'll get into the two Old Testament readings. One is optional on the other side of the break. I like that we get to talk about these things and we hit it from a different angle, but because we love each other and because we have the same religious views, you know, church is the centerpiece of our lives. Worship is the centerpiece of our lives. Molly Hemingway speaking at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. So when we are just going back and forth on politics, it's really not that important relative to the things that do matter. In all seriousness, if you do not have someone in your life that you both completely trust and regularly engage in arguments with, you're doing it wrong. You can watch and listen to journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway's Q&A and all of the presentations from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a contribution of $300 by Labor Day. We'll send you links to download a podcast or watch a video stream. Order today at issuesetc.org or by check. Make your check payable to Issues Etc. and send it to Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. When you hear the word heresy, what do you think of? Do you think of some ancient debate the church has gotten over and forgotten? Do you think of some stubby old theologians just arguing over things that don't matter? There's a lot more to heresies than you might think. And that's what the August issue of The Lutheran Witness is all about. Heresies, ancient and modern. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. Christ-centered, cross-focused, you're listening to Issues Etc. Come and experience firsthand by sitting down in classes and actually hearing professors, coming to chapel, which is always the high point of the day, to hear the Word of God and to lift our voices in song. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Paul Grimm on why you should consider visiting Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana spend time talking to professors. I mean, there's not a professor here who will not be willing to, to take time, whether it's after chapel during the coffee hour or just to come into one study and, and sit down and talk for a while, to answer questions, to you know, help them to get a sense of, A, you know, do they want to be a pastor or a deaconess? And then B, is this the right place? And well, maybe C would be the question, is now the right time for them to make that decision? If you've contemplated the vocation of pastor or deaconess, contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or send an email to admission at ctsfw.edu. We are looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, the 10th Sunday after Trinity. Pastor Peter Bender is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Before we get into that Old Testament reading in Jeremiah chapter 8, you wanted to say something about the Old Testament readings and the epistle readings that are alternates for the coming Sunday. 
That's right. Both Old Testament readings are from Jeremiah, and both of them cover the problem of self-righteous impenitence that the prophet Jeremiah was called to deal with in the southern kingdom of Judah, which is the time that he ministered to them. The first option from Jeremiah 8 is a description of the children of Judah as being in a state of perpetual backsliding. Fools who live in stubborn pride and self-righteousness, which will lead to their destruction. And a Christian who struggles with sin, hearing that word, it stings. Perpetual backsliding. It also chastises the prophets and the priests for failing to do their duty in their office in calling the people to repentance. Instead of doing their duty, speaking the hard language to expose sin, they rather confirm the people in their sin, confirm them in their impenitence, and proclaiming peace to them where there is no peace. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. That's Jeremiah 8. Now, the second option covers the same theme, but as an address to Jeremiah, who is in this address from Jeremiah 7, called by the Lord to stand in the gate of the temple and to warn the children of Judah that they cannot simply do whatever they please in fulfilling the appetites of their flesh, in all manner of injustice, and in the worship of Baal, and then come back to the temple under the notion that they are God's chosen people. They have the temple so they can do as they please. It is a kind of self-righteous impenitence that exhibited itself in a denial of the gospel, and out of that then, an absence of mercy toward those who are truly in need. So both Old Testament readings cover the same territory, but from kind of like two different vantage points. So here's the Old Testament reading from Jeremiah 8, 4 through 12. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, when men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit, they refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people know not the just decrees of the Lord. How can you say, we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame, they shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors, because from the least to the greatest everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So, Todd, that's pretty harsh, direct language. And when the word of the Lord is spoken to expose sin and rebellion against the Lord. 
as it is here in no uncertain terms, the proper response is contrition and repentance. In fact, the Lord is telling the prophet that's the normal response. When men fall, do they not rise again? That would be normal. If one turns away, does he not return? That would be normal, but not for the children of Israel. Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? So in the case of the children of Judah, the prophet laments that they are in a state of perpetual backsliding, holding fast to their own interpretation of God's law in a way that did not lead them to confess their sin, but rather in a way that led them to justify themselves. It's kind of like Phariseeism on steroids. And there is no shame. You know, what have I done? But rather only stubborn self-righteousness. There's no blushing over one's sin but only arrogance. So everyone turns to his own cause, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. I love that image because when a war horse is under the command of its rider, it goes headlong into battle, even though in so many cases, that horse and its rider are going to die. So it's an image used here by the prophet, illustrating the stupidity of refusing the call to contrition and repentance that leads to one's destruction. That word stupid will find its way into Psalm 92 for the day as well. See, horses are dumb. I used to raise cows. Cows are smarter than horses. If a horse puts its leg through the barbed wire fence and then pulls it back, it keeps pulling on that barbed wire until it cuts the leg all apart. A cow, on the other hand, or a donkey would stick the leg through, feel the barbs, and then retreat the leg. Donkeys are smarter, like Balaam's donkey. was smarter than Balaam himself. He would not dare to presume to go against the Lord. So, even the stork knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow, and crane keep the time of their coming. But my people do not know the just decrees of the Lord. These birds are smarter than horses. Even they know to turn away from the threat of danger or their own destruction. But the heart that is hardened in self-righteousness and pride, that uses God's law not to confess and return to the Lord, but to exalt oneself with God's law in self-righteousness, is blind to the error of its impenitence. So how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They have rejected the word of the Lord so what wisdom is in them? There is none. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. So this passage must be applied to us, not only in the ways that we refuse to hear the message of the law's condemnation for our sin, but also in the ways in which we refuse to live according to the gospel of God's mercy in Christ, in our relationship with one another within the church and toward others outside of the church, a kind of pharisaical self-righteousness against others that folds its arms and turns its nose against other sinners as if we have no sin and only they are the sinners. It sees the law or even doctrine as an end in itself rather than understanding the law as that which humbles us before God and before one another, that we all might find our life in Christ. 
Now, the second Old Testament reading, Jeremiah 7, which we've already talked about somewhat, envisions Jeremiah as being called to stand there at the gate of the temple and to issue his warning. So here's how it reads from Jeremiah 7, 1 through 11. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now a couple of brief comments to draw this Old Testament reading to a conclusion. Jeremiah is called to preach in the gate of the temple, the house of the Lord, calling the congregation of Judah to repent of their abuse of God's grace. It is not simply that they did not repent when they heard the condemnation of the law for their sin. It is also, and most especially, that they use their status as descendants of Abraham, or as we might, as Lutherans, as God's chosen people. They use that status as a license to commit all manner of injustice and lack of compassion and mercy toward the needy, and even to engage in idolatrous worship of Baal. In other words, their most grievous sin was sin not simply against the law, but against the gospel and the call to faith given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we are God's chosen people. We have the temple. We are superior to all others. We can do as we please and return to the temple, not as broken and contrite sinners, but as self-righteous idolaters. We are delivered only to do these abominations. And of course, that's a lie. So repentance is described here as a mending of your ways and an executing of justice with one another. And there are two points made by Jeremiah with respect to this repentance. Number one, executing justice with one another. That is to say, to allow the law to speak, to acknowledge it honestly as the word that exposes my sin, to honestly confess it without rationalization or self-justification in broken and contrite hearts, to flee from all idolatry and to cling to the Lord for mercy. And then number two, mercy and compassion for all others. The sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow also characterizes this kind of repentance. When we come back, we're going to be looking at Psalm 92 and its place in the Proverbs for this coming Sunday. Pastor Peter Bender is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc.
This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our adventures in Acts with Forgiveness is Proclaimed to You, Turning to the Gentiles, Signs and Wonders, We Are Men, and Through Many Tribulations. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. How do the global flood, circumcision, and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness foreshadow the baptismal flood in Christ? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. This new Bible study is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or find out more about The Baptismal River at issuesetc.org. The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. Sanctifying your commute with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The Schools Division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Peter Bender is our guest as we look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary. So, Peter, we come to the psalm, the appointed psalm, which is Psalm 92. That's right. Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by light, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they're doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish, all evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox, you have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So Psalm 92 is comforting psalm of praise that gives relief to us after the stern words of the Old Testament reading. The Old Testament reading is a warning to us, lest we find ourselves in the same stupid, foolish status of having rejected the Lord's grace in his call to repentance. So Psalm 92 celebrates the grace of God and the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Christ. What would you say about the gradual from Psalm 17? Well, the gradual is the shorter option. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. So it's a brief word. 
keep me as the apple of your eye. It is a wonderful expression because it means that we do not want to find ourselves in the state of impenitence that Judah found herself. She was the apple of God's eye, having been chosen according to the promise made to the patriarchs, but she despised her status and turned from the Lord. So in our baptism and the call to faith in Jesus, we are the apple of God's eye, and we pray that he would preserve us in this faith and then finally vindicate us at the last. What would you say about the two epistle options? Yeah, the first epistle is Romans 9, 30 through 10, 4. And I think the obvious connection to the Old Testament readings or the gospel for the day is pretty clear. The second epistle is 1 Corinthians 12, having to do with spiritual gifts. So the first option is focused upon the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Christ alone for both Gentile and Jew. The Gentiles attain to the righteousness of God without the law, that is to say, without the benefit of having received the Torah, because they were brought to repentance and faith in Jesus. But the Jews, on the other hand, did not attain to the righteousness of God, even though they had the law, that is to say, even though they had the Torah, which was to call them to repentance and point them to Jesus as the one who fulfilled the law for them and for the Gentiles, they stumbled over Christ he was the stumbling block to them because of his sacrificial death upon the cross. They could not accept it, preferring rather a misreading of the Torah, preferring a righteousness of their own by their own works of the law. So God's desire for salvation of the Jews is clearly proclaimed in this first epistle option, but the ignorance of self-righteous impenitence prevents them from receiving it. The righteousness of God that they are ignorant of is the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, which he made in atonement for all sin, that of Jew and Gentile. So the first epistle, Romans 9, 30, 10 through 4, reads this way. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law. This is the word of the Lord. So the end of the law, Christ, is because he has fulfilled the law. So that's the first epistle. And in contrast to this, the second epistle from 1 Corinthians concerns itself with the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who calls us to faith, enables us to confess that Jesus is Lord and who is the one who gives gifts to the church for the mutual service and edification of the body of Christ. I would say that the touchstone between the two epistles in terms of the overall theme for this Sunday is in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, apart from whom there can be no genuine repentance and faith in Christ, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit by his great gifts who enlightens us. So it reads simply this, Concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. 
You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So pausing in the reading there, I can't by my own reason or strength believe, but the Holy Spirit has called me by the gospel to faith in Jesus. And out of that faith created by the Spirit, I confess Jesus is Lord. Then it continues. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of the Lord. So you think about this 1 Corinthians 12, spanning the entire New Testament age from the time of the apostles and the marvelous works and gifts of the Spirit given in the apostolic age for the proclamation of the gospel, down to the present, where the office of the ministry is there to discharge through the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments of Christ everything that is necessary for our salvation. With a few minutes here, what is a good summary of this coming Sunday in terms of law and gospel? Yeah, there's been a lot to consider for this Sunday with the alternate readings and so forth, but let me make three points in terms of law and three points in terms of gospel. And we've already highlighted these themes, but the law must address itself, number one, in this way, that the law clearly proclaims that God's judgment falls upon anyone and everyone who rejects Christ as our righteousness and peace. And you see that in the severe judgment in the Old Testament readings and in Jesus' condemnation of Jerusalem and his prediction of its destruction. So the law clearly proclaims that God's judgment falls upon anyone and everyone who rejects Christ. Number two, the nature of impenitence. The law must address this and how it so often manifests itself in arrogant self-righteousness. That's not only true from those who have never known Christ. It can be particularly true for us within the church as it was for the Pharisees and the scribes or the chief priests or the elders of the people. Number three, the law must address the belief that our participation in the divine service or the liturgy or the sacraments of Christ are somehow our good works. I thank God I'm more liturgical than you, that I fold my hands the right way, that somehow they are our good works that make us worthy of God's salvation rather than seeing the sacraments and the liturgy and the divine service as gifts of God's grace for broken and contrite hearts. And that leads us into the unique gospel for the day. Number one, Jesus alone is our peace. Through his all-atoning sacrifice for us upon the cross, not my works, not my desires, not my self-righteousness, Jesus alone is my peace. Number two, God's yearning desire in love for our salvation is based solely upon his love for us in Christ. 
Jesus yearns for our salvation. He yearns for your salvation. He wants to save you and forgive you and cover you with his righteousness more than anything else. And it is necessary that we hear the severe judgment of the law or we cannot come to know the sweetness of his mercy and forgiveness. And finally, number three, Christ's righteousness is a gift of God's grace for every broken and contrite sinner, no matter who they are or what they have done. Pastor Peter Bender is pastor of Peace Lutheran Church in Sussex, Wisconsin, and director of the Concordia Catechetical Academy. Peter, thanks. Thanks, Todd. Issues Etc. has been brought to you in part today by Lutherans for Life. Lutherans for Life equips Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Find out about their work, including their national conference, coming up October 11th through the 13th at lutheransforlife.org, lutheransforlife.org. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll hear Melanie Standiford's story about losing her job as a TV news director for her pro-life efforts. We'll discuss a biblical response to Mormonism with Pastor John Leach, and we'll talk with Sandra Bolzman about the vocation of midwife. The Lord does indeed earnestly desire the salvation of all. When Jesus was shedding his blood on the cross, he was shedding it for all men, every last one of us. So it is that earnest desire for our salvation that continues to move the church by the power of the Holy Spirit and his word to proclaim Christ and him crucified for all men. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Issues Etc. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.